You're listening to audio from Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you'd like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. Today we are continuing in our series, Long Story Short. If you're joining with us for the first time, uh, you can find this series online, and I would challenge you to kind of follow up with the services before, the sermons before. Uh, We're on episode five, and so you can find episodes one through four uh, on on this series, and I think it'll help in this series to kind of, if you miss one, try to catch it up and and try to stay connected, because each story is going to be building on the next one. All right, so today we're on the story of Moses and the book of Exodus. Uh, Really, we're looking at Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy today in in brief, but really uh, focusing on Exodus. You can uh, turn with me to Exodus chapter six. Exodus chapter six, and like I said, we're gonna be jumping through some of the major ideas today, and as we go, I'm just praying for God's leading to know which area of uh, interest today we're gonna be spending our time on. There's many themes today that are gonna be connecting and many themes running through my head and through my heart and even as I look at this table that we're gonna partake in here in a few moments of how so much of it connects into what we're talking about today. In Exodus six, as we left Moses at the burning bush last week, we left him with God revealing God's personal name, I am that I am. God in Yahweh uh, speaks to Moses and calls him to deliver the people. Here in Exodus chapter six, we see the Lord again speaking to Moses and telling him, almost declaring that this is going to happen. So I want us to just take note of this and then we'll be walking through this narrative of what God is doing with his beloved people. In Exodus 6, verse 1, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of the land. Verse 2, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. There it is, I am Yahweh. He gives us his name, which he revealed to him early, that Lord, L-O-R-D, Yahweh. I am Jehovah, right, Jehovah. Verse three, I appeared to your forefathers, Abraham. I appeared to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Verse four, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they were living as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard, I've heard the groaning of my people or the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you. Redeem is this purchasing out of the slave market of sin, this purchasing out of Egypt, this exodus narrative here. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I 
am the Lord. So is there any question as to who's doing this, right? <laughs> who's in charge right now? <laughs> Moses, Israel. God is about to demonstrate his might and his power. And then he tells him in verse 10 to go to Pharaoh. Go up to Pharaoh and you tell him who's in charge. <laughs> you tell him that I mean business and you tell him to let my people go. This is where we start. This is where we kind of begin in this grand narrative, this grand story. Every story, like we said at the beginning of this series, has a plot structure, has a narrative, has this idea of that we're following. We talked about Little Red Riding Hood, right? <laughs> this situation of the story of an, of an agent that is sent, uh, someone who needs help, and uh, there's a rescue that happens, and then uh, kind of a restoration after the deliverance happens. And today there's a, a sender, an agent, and the story is reaching at this point to where we're reaching this kind of an impasse. As the storyline as we've been thinking it through is this great people has been brought and kind of been flourishing and yet now we find them in exodus in slavery and we're not exactly sure how this is gonna work out. The blessed and chosen family of God finds themselves in slavery. It's like, wait, this isn't how the story's supposed to work. We find themselves no longer in this place of blessing and prominence, but in slavery and in chains. You could say the offspring of the snake that we read in Genesis 3 is now here trying to enslave the seed of the woman to destroy this line that is supposed to bring blessing to the world. But what is God gonna do? God interrupts the narrative very abruptly with this burning bush. He then enters this narrative with these promises to deliver and to keep his promises that he already made to this family. And ultimately we find that these amazing stories, this history of God's word, and especially here in Exodus, and the formation of a brand new nation of Israel, and these true stories, their true history, they aren't just fabricated uh, fables. These storylines give me a, a lens to see the world that I live in, to encounter similar issues that we face today, some of the things Ben just spoke about is exodus and deliverance from our sin and death. Exodus provides a lens for me to see my problems, to see the, the red seas in life, my fears and the enemies that I face, the hopeless situations, and yet to ultimately see God as my only answer, the Yahweh that will deliver, the Yahweh who is powerfully in charge. And so this long story short allows us to have this understanding of the entirety of the Bible, but to really grasp the God who is, who is in control. And especially today in our culture system and our value systems that we live in in every time period, but especially today, we are being shaped and formed by the stories that we believe. And in culture and in our society, there are stories being written, written without God, that allow us to kind of make sense of a world that we live in and to develop our own value systems and our own collective consciousness to see the world the way it is, to develop a worldview without God. But here in our storyline, in our worldview that directly influ is influenced by God, we find in Exodus a state of the world very likened to ourselves today. A people hopelessly lost enslaved to uh, a master and also enslaved to themselves as we find them distracted with the guiding uh, gods of that day, 
the Egyptian gods of Anubis and Pharaoh, the sun god of Ra and Ramses, the gods of the underworld and temples and pyramids and mummification. (laughs) This afterlife, this is the story that we find these people entrenched in the middle of, this culture of Egypt and then this chosen family of Jacob whose name is changed to Israel means the man who strived with God, who struggles with God, and then he perseveres and receives a blessing of God and yet finds himself in chains. This family, though, is not forgotten. We find in Exodus this family is not lost. It is through, yes, man's sin and devices, Joseph's brother that sends this family down there, and yet it is through God's glory and God's way that provides Joseph to, to save and preserve the family for what God, for what we, man, meant for evil, God meant for good, and used Joseph to preserve the people here until this point. And then in Exodus 1, there arose a king who didn't remember Joseph, didn't know who he was, and felt threatened by the family of Jacob and Israel and Joseph, and enslaved them. And then eventually tried to kill off all of the Hebrew male um, firstborn children. All the children are killed off, attempted, and Moses is preserved. And we see Moses is being called, and then Moses and Aaron are used as the mouthpiece to deliver God's chosen people. And so we come to this place in Exodus and we too ask questions of ourselves that we have a great need in life that we share here with Israel. That we often might feel in that manner, in that place of great need. And we are reminded in Exodus and really throughout the entire story of the Bible that we all have a need for deliverance, a need for protection. We have need for guidance and direction in our lives. We are all out there searching for meaning and purpose. We are in need of provision. We are in need for the presence, a true lasting presence of meaning and true presence of God. And so who is out there? Who is out there that will rescue us? Who is it that will protect us? Who is it out there that will guide us and tell us where to go and where to be and how to define what is important and true and meaning in this life? Who is that? And the answer that resounds from Exodus in the story of the Bible is it is Yahweh, it is Yahweh, it is the Lord our God. We have great need of so many things in life and the Bible speaks into that need and says the Lord is your salvation. Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus, the Lord is salvation. And so it is in that archetype, that narrative, that we then look into what is God doing here? And he says the Lord is salvation and I'm not just going to say it, but I'm going to show you in the most extreme, um, overt, outward, most powerful ways that you can even think imaginable, right? That those ways is the way God shows his power. He demonstrates with his mighty arm. In Exodus 6, he said, I will, I will, I will, I will. I am God, and I am powerful, and I will deliver my people. And so we see in Exodus 7 and 8, 9, 10, we see this this amazing way that God is about to do this. He goes up and he says to Pharaoh, let my people go, and Pharaoh says, no way. And so so eventually Moses, uh, through God, is delivering these plagues. You're familiar with it. In Sunday school, we study the plagues. In fact, if the booth could put those on the screen. I'm gonna walk through, thinking through these really quickly. Uh, Many of you are probably familiar with them, 
And I've uh, found it very fascinating to think through the 10 plagues, not just in regards to like some arbitrary judgment that God just pulled out of a hat, like what do I wanna do? And he's shaking it up and he's like, I don't know, flies this time and I don't know, locust over here. I don't know, we turn the Nile into blood. Just, he's just arbitrarily deciding random things to do that will cause most harm. But I, I think it's, it's a little bit more nuanced than that and I've always found it very helpful to think through these things in regards to the power of God being flexed. Is he simply just flexing his power in order just to do it? We see that in the beginning here that he, he is often directly defying these false gods of the Egyptian people. Almost every plague can be traced to a different Egyptian god that was worshiped in this culture. I'm gonna run through some of them for us as we can think through, and it depends on uh, kind of who you're studying here in Egyptian history, for there were so many gods in that culture, in this polytheistic culture, that, that there are a variety of gods that can be attributed to each one. But especially as the first one is an overt statement of God's power over the life that came from the Nile. The Nile was the source of the Egyptian strength and the power and everything they did flowed in and through and from the Nile River. It was what gave life to this desert place. So there was the god of Kanum, was the guardian of the river's source. The god, god of Hapi was the god of the flooding of the Nile and the lord of the fish inside of that. And Osiris, this god that you're probably familiar, was said to have the Nile River as his bloodstream flowing through his godlike powers. Um, the frogs is the next one, and the god of Hecht was the Egyptian goddess who had a head of a frog. Uh, we see the number three was this gnats or this lice, which oh, sounds horrendous if you think about it. And uh, Geb was the god over the dust of the earth or the ground. The earth was the god of Geb. And so we see that this way of, of God constantly showing that he has power over these things. It's kind of fascinating though as you go, we don't have time to look into it too much today, but this idea that at the beginning, uh, some of the magicians that Pharaoh brings in are able to um, kind of respond by copycatting some of these things. They're able to turn the Nile into blood, the water into blood. They're able to turn, number two, the frogs. They're able to do that magic or this powerful or this work. And it, and it begs to differ, it begs the question as to how they were able to do this. You know, even the fact that Moses throws down his staff and the magicians throw down their staff and they're able to do the same, but at the end we see a very visual picture of who's in charge and who's the more powerful God here as Moses' staff eats up all the other staffs. We see this snake-like thing come about and eat them up and the power of God is demonstrated right in the face of all the other gods. And in scripture and throughout, we see that even in Psalm 82 that there is God, the God of Yahweh, who sits among the other little g gods in this divine council. It's an incredible thought that God is in the way of demonstrating his power, not only to us human beings on earth, but also to the Elohim, the powers that might be, the angelic beings, the Satan and the demonic forces are being, are being put in their place. And God is demonstrating his power as the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the King of kings above all others, that there is no rival. They might try to copycat, but in the end, he will demonstrate his authority and power over all of them. 
And then we see in number four, this flies, right? This, this flies everywhere, uh, kind of like recently, maybe some of your garages are like that, or you have one of those electric things like we do in our household, those electric uh, things that zap the bugs. Do you guys have those? I know some of you are, are twisted like me. You walk around the house trying to get the flies, you're just looking for them to zap them with those little tennis racket, electric tennis racket things are awesome. Uh, but these flies, imagine that everywhere. And so, so this fly is, uh, some would say, even you could translate this one, flies, but some would even say a beetle, which is also potentially like for number nine, but this, this idea that they were everywhere, the god of Kepri has the head of a beetle, like a fly, and he was also said the god of Kepri was like the god of Ra, the sun god, that, that like a dung beetle, a scarab beetle, moved a piece of dung across the ground, so did Kepri and the god of Ra move the sun across across the earth every day. And so it is in that that God is demonstrating he is far greater than any of these as, as he is more powerful and he makes the sun to rise and the moon as well. And then um, we see in uh, number five, the diseased cattle or the disease that comes upon here. We have Hathor, the fertility goddess who is depicted with the head of horns of a bull. The boils, this Isis, was a goddess of health. Imhotep was the god of, of I think, uh, the underworld and yet of healing as well. And Egyptian priests were able to appear in court for some of these others to try to copy this, but when it came to the boils, the Egyptian priests weren't even able to come to the court for they themselves were so inflicted with these boils. Hail was sent down in number seven, and the god of Nut was the goddess of the sky. Her father was the Shu god of the wind and air and the calming god, and yet Yahweh demonstrates his authority over them. And then we get to number eight, and it starts to ramp up in, in severity. And the locusts of Neper and Nepri, these gods and goddesses of grain, and this disorder that is created upon the entire crop system of all that they had left was wiped out. And this one is actually stands out in the others that uh, God says that Pharaoh will tell his grandchildren about this one, number eight. He will go down in history telling them about the locusts that came into the land and you will witness the power of Yahweh, it says in that. And then in darkness, number nine, where there was darkness all over, and the sun god of Ra, who's obviously one you're probably more familiar with, was worshiped and revered in the God of Egypt as, as one of the strongest and most powerful gods in their um, in their religion. And Jehovah, God, shows that he has power even them. And then 10, the final one that, that is probably the most striking to us as it reflects even what we learn and know of for what we're celebrating today, uh, the Passover, communion. We'll look at that in a moment. But the plague was a judgment on all of the Egyptian gods combined and the including specifically to the godlike status that the Pharaoh assumed in their order and in their um, religion. He was considered a god and Pharaoh had ordered the murder and the killing of all Hebrew babies earlier and Moses many years before and now the firstborn sons would be asked of by God here and the Hebrew children would be saved. We see in Exodus 12 of God describing the importance of the Passover and telling them of what we know of today as the Passover. And at the end of this, this final Passover of the death angel, one of the richest descriptions of the rescue plan of God through Jesus Christ as this chief narrative story of God's redemptive plan worked through Jesus as he is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
He is here in Exodus 12 viewed as this picture of a Passover lamb where they would go about with these instructions of taking a lamb uh, that would have been a year old without defect of spotless lamb. They were to, in Exodus 12, slaughter the lamb at twilight and paint some of the blood on the sides of their houses, the doorposts of the house. And they were to prepare the lamb and eat it as a meal inside of that home. And they were to be ready to leave at any moment, dressed, ready to go. God explained that the death angel would pass over their homes with the blood on the doorposts and by doing this, they would be saved. Eventually we know of Jesus in the New Testament attributing himself as the Passover lamb. Many New Testament writers speaking of him as the, as the Passover lamb. It's John himself pointing that he is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. For the blood of the lamb for Jesus over our lives on the cross would bring salvation for all. So we know what happened. They escape Egypt. where They get out of Egypt but where are they to go? They have the need of deliverance and they have been delivered. They've been saved. They get to get out of Dodge. They're probably wondering where they're headed to go. Where are we going now? It's almost like you're looking for directions, you know? And God is the one who gives directions. He tells them in Exodus 12, the Passover, and then they're to leave. And then in Exodus 13, we see God, as they leave, God leads them along the way. In fact, in Exodus 13, you can look at verse 18 with me. Exodus 13, verse 18, God is giving the people a direction by his direct involvement in their lives. In verse 18, it says, but God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. And Moses, remember this? Maybe you were here a couple weeks ago, and Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from you with you. And then it goes on in verse 21, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night, and the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And I love this in verse 22 it did not depart from the people. God in a very direct means says, follow me. I have delivered you and I will lead you. Follow me, trust me, I know where I'm going. And I always find it fascinating that they chose through a pillar of cloud and smoke and a pillar of fire that these are the two depictions as God gives uh, us a picture of his presence and his leading and his guidance. We looked back in Abraham when God made a covenant with Abraham. He said, divide a heifer, divide an animal in two, and I will pass through this to make a promise. Do you remember that when we looked at that, with a covenant with Abraham? How is it that God passed through that to make and affirm that covenant promise with him? Well, he passed through that promise as a cloud-smoking pot and a fire. He passed through those as his representation of who he is. He passed through those and made a covenant with Abraham saying, if I do not keep this covenant or you do not keep this covenant, let me be done like this animal has been cut me into. Let me take on your sin. Let me take on any reproach to this covenant that I make. But he passes through it like fire and like smoke. Here he leads the people with fire and with smoke. And it's a picture that God here is not just leading when it is convenient, but here that he does not leave them. It says it did not depart from the people. And for years to come, he will be like this and in this manner. 
And I love this concept that, that God eventually confirms over and over that he will never leave you, he will never forsake you. His, it is like in the very essence that God in his pillar of cloud, of smoke and of fire leads us wherever he may go. God is there, he is present and he demonstrates that by never leaving us nor forsaking us. Deuteronomy 31 and Joshua 1, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. God is guiding them, he's leading them. But what happens when, when, when he leads them to a, to a place that doesn't seem to make much sense? <laughs> what happens when God, you're following God and, and then you find yourself with your back against the wall? Literally, a wall of water. <laughs> Exodus 14, he, God leads them as he, they are sure and confident that the smoke or the fire is leading them in this manner. And then all of a sudden in Exodus 14, we see this amazing Red Sea miracle, the story, the movies, the depictions of all. We're, we're very much familiar and aware of this, but in Exodus 14, verse 29, it says, in Exodus 14, 29, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea of the waters, being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left, and thus the Lord saved Israel that day and the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore and Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in the servant Moses. God's divine protection, he led them, he, got, he rescued them, he led them into the wilderness, he led them to the Red Sea, he divinely protected his people and provided safety and salvation for them. This miracle, would you, you could say, was the final blow on all of the gods in the Egyptian way. And then in Exodus 14, God before that, he says, I will get glory over Pharaoh. God is a jealous God. He is jealous for his glory. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of the host of Egypt, for I am the Lord. And then God leads them, and he provides for them. He gives them manna from heaven in the next chapters. He gives them water from the rock and yes, we find them complaining even right at the beginning. Did you bring us out here because there weren't enough graves back in Egypt that you needed to bury us in the wilderness, they say? (laughs) And yet we find ourselves commiserating with that as well for we find ourselves in the same place at times, doubting the very miracles of God that he just did for them. And then he leads them to a place a place of, of, of great wonder and majesty and glory where God's presence descends from leading them to the place on top. It ascends to the place on Mount Sinai. This is in Exodus 19 where we see God's lead, rescuing them, delivering them, sending them, guiding them, protecting them, providing for them. And then we see him providing for them this, this nation state. He forms them into a nation at the base of Mount Sinai. And he does so in a very amazing way. We think of even today, the giving of the law to the people is such an important, pivotal moment in the nation of Israel from becoming just a family to now becoming a nation. We can think of our own country today on July 4th where we celebrate so much of what our nation's values are about, so much of, of a reminding ourselves of the beginning of how it took place, declaring independence, right? The declaration of independence, the guiding and the uniting of our country together under common values, establishing ourselves as a separate entity, declaring the sovereignty of the American colonies apart from the crown, declaring our independence as Americans, the colonies. 
And then the Constitution is formed to bind us together, the Bill of Rights and the laws by which we govern ourselves even as we do still today. And in a similar way, we can think of that as a moment in the history of Israel taking place right here. Exodus 19 and 20 and beyond is God establishes them. He gives them documents that will guide and direct their way of living. For he has said that he, will make, that, that, that he is a holy God. He's a pure God. And he is in, entering into relationship with impure people. And how is this relationship going to be governed? Well, this is how it will be done. This is my law. He established them as a nation. And this is where we really see the formation of the kingdom of God, which is a major theme. We see Jesus talking about the kingdom over and over. For the kingdom is God, is ruling and reigning his people. They are the citizens of God's kingdom. I will be your God, he says, and you will be my people. Be holy for I am holy. So up until this point in the narrative, we get an incredible, fast-paced, moving story, character after character, storyline after story, miracle after miracle, even from Genesis 1 till now in Exodus 20, we see extraordinary things, characters, all of these things that it's even sometimes hard to keep track of what's going on, and then all of a sudden, the entire story takes a halt and it gets boring really fast, right? Have you ever done your Bible reading? You hit end of Exodus and you're head right into Leviticus like do to do, I don't know what I'm facing and then all of a sudden you law after law after law and you're like this seems like a lot and you're right because there's actually 613 laws that are given over the next book and a half, okay? So we're gonna go through all 613 today, okay now. But I do ask the question as to why, you know, if, if God was having a, a writer who was trying to give him help, like I don't know if that's the way you start off the whole Bible, right? Having right at the beginning here uh, this huge portion of law after law. And what is God doing in the whole book of Leviticus? Our favorite book to read, right? You know, for family devotions. No, I, it's one of those books that we're like, what is even going on? And us in the New Testament, we... We really disdain the law, we hate the law, we talk about how bad the law is, and in just so doing, we do, but I think we often misunderstand as to, in their viewpoint, in their mind, this law is a wonderful blessing from God. 613 laws, yeah, it's very strange things that we don't fully understand, this kosher dietary restrictions, not wearing mixed fiber clothing, which I'm clearly failing today, not eating shellfish, animal sacrifice, and all types of animal sacrifices and rituals. How is it possible that anybody could keep these laws? There's a variety of ceremonial laws right after the Ten Commandments are given in the first forefront, this moral Ten Commandments. There are many ceremonial laws. You don't just go waltzing into a conversation with God. You don't just go into his presence. There are very clear, strict standards as to how you approach me in the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. Not anybody just goes up and talks with God. No, no, no. Moses alone could go into the cloud on top of Mount Sinai. And so there were ceremonial laws that provided holiness standards, laws that funneled Israel towards living a holy, distinct, and pure life that separated them from the worldviews of all of the other nations around that were polytheistic and worshiping all kinds of things and bowing down to idols every day. This type of living, this nation was gonna be separate. The word is holy, set apart from all others. Because why? God is a jealous God. He is jealous for his glory. He will not allow other ways to come in and steal his glory. 
and he sets up moral laws that are based on his character. Chiefly, obviously the ones, that, the 10 commandments that we're most familiar with. The 10 commandments, this, this way of looking at it where the first four commandments uh, teach us how to love God, you know, have no other gods before me. You know, all of those ideas of teaching us how to really reflect ourselves to love God. And the last six, you know, don't steal, don't murder. This idea of how we deal with our neighbor, how we love our neighbor. And so the first four, the last six, loving God, loving our neighbor, which is what Jesus does in the New Testament when he summarizes all of them. The, to summarize all of the laws, to love God and to love your neighbor. Chris Bruno writes this and says, the law itself points beyond its intentions for Israel. God set Israel apart from the nations, but not just to be a hermit people and do all themselves by themselves, but the sacrifices of the law were not an end of them to themselves either. Instead, the law itself was to design and to point to the greater promises of God, the one who would come and fulfill all of them. They were intended to point beyond, to teach us about God's holiness and our transgression of the law and our place in his world and to ultimately learn to love him and to love our neighbor as ourselves. The greatest commandment. I mean, they were even summarizing the law in the Old Testament. In Micah 6, 8, you're probably familiar with it. Micah gives an entire way of summarizing all of the laws down to just three. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. There's a good way to summarize 613 laws, right? And in the New Testament, we see Galatians reminding us that the law is not to be disdained and hated, but rather the law is to be viewed in light of Jesus, that the law is our schoolmaster. The law in the Old Testament in Galatians 3.24. So then, the law was our guardian. The word is schoolmaster, school teacher, or tutor. It is our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. It teaches us about who we are. Maybe you're familiar with that, sto- uh, that show that was out a long time ago, I guess now, that show of uh, Extreme Makeover Home Edition. You remember that? <laughs> they do these incredible makeover of houses for people, and it's just extraordinary, massive, extravagant things that were just incredible to watch, and that dude with the really high voice would always say, move that bus, right? I can't remember his name, right? And this huge house is there. It was an amazing gift. It's a blessing, but you know, actually after that, it was, uh, they had went through quite a bit of scandal because the people couldn't pay the property taxes or pay for the energy costs it took to run the thing. And they didn't think through that actually this might be not the best gift ever, right? Because they actually can't afford to live in this house. And so this is similar in my mind to the law. It was given as this amazing thing, but with this amazing gift came amazing responsibilities. And God knew They would not be able to handle every aspect of this gift. Israel obviously failed in keeping all of the law, but that is why from the beginning that God has been pairing the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the snake, the one who would come and fulfill every aspect of the law. For the law was not an end of itself. It was meant to be fulfilled, and it was meant to be fulfilled in Jesus. The law points to our Savior and our need for a Savior. So the law is good. It teaches us about Jesus. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And in Hebrews 7, it reminds us of Jesus coming as our priest and as our sacrifice, that he is not like the other priests who needed to make a a sacrifice for their own sins before they came into the tabernacle to make a sacrifice for the sins of the people. Jesus was a perfect sacrifice who needed no sacrifice for himself. He was the sacrifice and the priest who sacrificed it. 
He was both in Hebrews 7, it says. So that he was able, since he is alive forevermore, mediates for you and me on our behalf as our eternal high priest and as our perfect sacrifice, he is in heaven making atonement for our sins right now. And so he saves, he is able to save, as the Bible says, even to the uttermost. He is able to make atonement for your sins. He is able to make us holy. Jesus, the eternal priest, the eternal mediator. Jesus, the eternal sacrifice, the perfect atonement for our sins. The one who completely fulfills all of the needs of the law. He is our divine liberator from exodus. He is the divine lawgiver, and he is the divine atonement maker, the divine sacrifice. His blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat on our behalf. Praise be to God for the gospel of Jesus Christ that covers from the beginning to the end and touches us even now as we head into the table. And so as we head to this table in this closing moments, we think in regards of our need for what this table represents. For we have got them out of Egypt. They are now given a law that they cannot keep and we are pointed towards Jesus and yet we see that in the Old Testament there is so much that happens and yet what does God give them? Yes, a law, but he doesn't leave them alone. He gives them the greatest gift they could ever have in the people of Israel. He gives them his presence. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And I, he says, I will dwell with my people. He gives them stipulations. The booth can put it up on the screen if they may, but this idea that's very detailed instructions as to this extravagant temple well, really, tabernacle that will eventually go into an even more extravagant tabernacle into a temple as we see that this is the manner in which God would dwell with his people, the holy of holies, uh, the, the holy place, and the most holy of holy place. Every detail in this entire place was given and instructed to the people so that God's presence could dwell with them. And in fact, in Exodus chapter 40, in Exodus chapter 40, before we look here, the very end of Exodus, we see the tabernacle being finished. And in Exodus 40, verse 33, it says, so Moses finished the work. And then verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Wow, remember that smoke, that that cloud, it filled. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled upon it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, wherever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and its fire was in it by night, in the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. Can we just for a moment imagine the immensity of having the presence of God dwell in this place amidst the people of God? Wow. To consider the power and the lightning and the thunder on Mount Sinai that caused them to fear the power of God dwelling on Mount Sinai, now dwelling in a tent amidst the people of God. The tabernacle is the beginning of what we would remind ourselves is the grand story of the Bible. God with us. Like the garden. We walked with him in the cool of the garden. We conversed with him. 
That has been broken by our rebellion and God is restoring, reconciling, redeeming that relationship again. He has not thrown it off, but he is restoring that. And in the tabernacle, that relationship is temporarily restored, that mankind could dwell and speak with God. As Moses would go to the tent of meeting, he would speak, as the word says in Exodus, like a man speaks to a friend. The very presence of Yahweh dwelled with him and spoke with Moses. And now here, in the midst of this table, we in likewise turn And we think of, as I read before we get into this, I wanna read one last passage before we come to the table. In Exodus 24, this is before the tabernacle has been made. This is before all of this has fully taken place. God is handing Moses the 10 commandments, but it's before that that he makes a sacrifice and he sprinkles the blood. And then in verse nine and 10, it talks about how Moses, this is Exodus 25, verse nine. It says, and Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 of the elders of Israel went up to the presence to Mount Sinai. They went up to this plateaued area up on, up on the mountain and they saw, get this, just like I know this is hard to think about, but just, Just imagine yourself at the bottom of this massive mountain, looking up and this cloud is hurling and fire burning, and we see that these elders went up, and verse 10, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief of the men of the people of Israel, for what does it say in verse 11? They beheld God, and they ate and drank. Oh, one day we know in Revelation 19 that we will stand and we will eat and drink at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And here at the beginning, we see God dwelling again in his, with his people, entertaining their presence as he allows for as much as they can handle and take his presence to them for his perfect holiness will strike anyone dead. And yet it is that God comes down to be with his people and it is in there that they restore the garden again as they eat and drink in the presence of God. And in like manner, we come knowing that we have a greater intimacy with God in a day like today than they had on that mountain. 1 Peter 1.18 speaks about how we come into this place today not with lambs, but with the precious blood of Christ like the lamb without blemish and spot, the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. For Jesus Christ, as it says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, who is our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for you and for me. So we come before a table and we do not just make this to be theater. We do not make this more than it is or less than it is. We dwell at this moment with one another, the church of Christ. The Bible says is the house of God, which is the church of the living God, 1 Corinthians 3.16. The church is a spiritual house in 1 Peter. In Ephesians 2, we are a holy nation, a holy priesthood, and a holy temple. 
the grandeur of the temple and the tabernacle in the Old Testament and the presence of God there dwelling on a mountain now dwells within us. And we, as a holy priesthood, come before a simple temple in comparison to that. And we simply, in a manner that is simple and yet mysterious that I don't understand, we come and we partake of bread and of juice and we eat in the presence of God. By our own works? No. By the grace of Jesus Christ and more importantly by the blood of the Passover lamb that we walk into his presence and encounter his goodness today.